Um, all right, we are going to be looking at Matthew 6, 1 through 18. Matthew 6, 1 through 18, as we continue on in our sermon series, Walking Slowly Through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we're going to look at Matthew 6, 1 through 18 this morning. And then for the next three Sundays following this Sunday, we are going to be particularly focusing in on the Lord's Prayer, uh, since the sort of largest portion of this passage is focused on prayer, um, and since the Lord's Prayer is really um, kind of at the dead center of the Sermon on the Mount. It is at the exact center of the Sermon on the Mount, and that uh, we believe is, is because it is central to the teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. So we want to just kind of focus in on it in the following three Sundays. Uh, but this morning, we're going to take all of Matthew 6, 1 through 18 together and uh, look at what Jesus has to say to us about personal piety and spiritual disciplines. Um, so open up to Matthew 6, 1 through 18, and let's take a moment to pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Father, we give you thanks for your word, um, that we are not in the dark concerning who you are, what you've done for us in Christ, who you call us to be in Christ. And we pray that uh, as this passage is um, explained, proclaimed, applied this morning, that you would pierce our hearts with the truth and reality of the gospel so that we would live in the freedom of whole person righteousness and human flourishing that you are calling us into in and through your Son. And we pray this for your glory, for our good, for the good of all that we come in contact with this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in uh, Jonathan Haidt's wonderful book, uh, The Righteous Mind, he, he poses this um, sort of hypothetical ultimatum to his readers. He says, suppose the gods were to flip a coin on the day of your birth. Heads, you will be supremely honest and a fair person throughout your life, yet everyone around you will think you a scoundrel. Tails, and you will cheat and lie whenever it suits your needs, yet everyone around you will think you're a paragon of virtue. Which outcome would you prefer? And this question obviously causes us to consider what it is we, we value more. Actually being virtuous, actually being righteous, actually being good, or merely appearing to be good, merely having a reputation for it, merely being seen as such. Of course, it's not a new question. The Greek philosophers, as Haight goes on to say, um, uh, address this. Plato's Republic is really just a, a lengthy meditation on, on uh, this exact point, on why it's actually better to be virtuous and righteous than merely have a reputation for it. And according to Plato, uh, real happiness, real human flourishing doesn't actually consist of merely appearing to be virtuous, merely having a reputation for it, having good social standing because of goodness and righteousness and, and, and virtue. Real happiness and human flourishing actually consists of being righteous and virtuous. And I want you to see that Jesus is addressing the same kind of idea here. Uh, the, the call laid upon us in the kingdom of God 
is what we have been calling as we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount is this call of whole person righteousness. Not having the mere appearance of righteousness, not merely having a reputation for righteousness, not seeking a righteousness that merely settles for outward conformity to superficial moral standards, but the kind of righteousness we're called to in the kingdom of God involves the whole entirety of our person. It involves an act, a righteousness of act, indeed, yes. It involves a righteousness of speech, even, but it also involves a righteousness of our inner person, what Jesus calls our hearts, even our hearts, our desires, our thoughts, our intentions, our motivations are to conform to the will of our heavenly Father. And according to Jesus, as we've been seeing as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount, according to Jesus, this is actually real happiness and human flourishing. Remember how we're defining happiness as we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount? Uh, happiness and human flourishing, as it's defined in the Sermon on the Mount, is not temporary and fleeting feelings of pleasure based on favorable circumstances. Real happiness, real human flourishing, real blessedness, real makarios, if you remember that word that we drilled into our heads when we walked through the Beatitudes, is found in the path of whole person righteousness that Jesus here is calling us to. And in chapter 5, we just walk through how this wholeness and how this human flourishing and whole person righteousness relates to the commands of God. Okay, so according to Jesus, human flourishing and whole person righteousness is, is found not just in abstaining from murder and adultery and perjury and the like, Rather, it's found in being rid of the root of those sins in our hearts. So rather than just avoiding committing the act of murder, we seek to rid ourselves of all bitterness and malice and sinful anger in our lives. Rather than just avoiding the act of adultery, we seek to rid ourselves of all lust, all impersonal and inordinate sexual desire in our hearts. Rather than just avoiding perjury, we seek to be the truthful people of God that have integrity in all our dealings. And, and I hope you've seen thus far that we're actually hopeless to do this in and of ourselves. Now, our prayer should be as St. Augustine prayed, Lord, command what you will, but grant what you command. In fact, the entire point of the Sermon on the Mount is that the one who is teaching it is the one who has come to do this miraculous act within us. He's the one that has come to die in our place on that tree to pay for our complete and utter failure to conform to his goodwill. And he's the one who rose again on the third day in order to give us the power to change and grow in becoming more and more like the community described in the Sermon on the Mount. And so now we turn to chapter 6, and in chapter 6, the, the theme of human flourishing through whole person righteousness continues, but, but the part of our lives that he directs it toward takes a little bit of a turn. Here he takes a turn from focusing on whole person righteousness as it pertains to the commands of God's word, and he, it focuses on our personal piety and practice of spiritual disciplines, certain spiritual disciplines. It focuses on our acts of financial generosity, of our prayer lives, and the discipline of fasting. And what Jesus wants to address here 
is not our merely practicing these disciplines, but he wants to address, as you might guess, our motivation for doing so. Again and again, he implores his church not to devote ourselves to these practices as the hypocrites do in order to be seen by others, but to devote ourselves to these practices in order to please our heavenly Father. That is the kind of righteousness that will see an eternal reward from our Father, he says. That is true goodness, true virtue, true righteousness. And that is the kind of life that will truly lead to happiness and human flourishing. All right, so we're going to dig into Matthew 6, 1 through 18. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, let's listen with reverence and joy to the words of our King. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. So here in Matthew 6, 1 through 18, we see that we are to avoid hypocrisy and seek to practice righteousness for the sake of our Heavenly Father. And we'll unpack that sort of big idea by looking at the practices, the problem And the promise, the practices, the problem, and the promise. So first, the practices. So I've been doing some some fascinating reading for the last several weeks on the kind of political, religious, sociological context of first century Judaism. And as you might have guessed, it was a bit uh, different than the Judaism we see described on the pages of the Old Testament. You know, the people had been exiled from the land. They'd been scattered all over the face of the ancient world. They'd been ruled over and occupied by the Persians and the Syrians and the Greeks and the Romans. And they'd they'd been stripped of their homes, their land, their temple, their kingdom. 
Because of this, the, the Jewish community had gone through some significant changes. Of course, with you know, many of them being scattered all over the ancient world and the first temple being destroyed, uh, the religious practices had changed significantly. Uh, with no access to the temple, the Jewish synagogue had become central in the life of the worshiping community. Uh, with no temple, they also could no longer offer sacrifices of animals and, and, and grain and, and whatnot in the temple. And uh, so what seemed to sort of replace the sacrificial system in first century Judaism is what is often called the three pillar practices of Judaism, the three pillar practices, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. Almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. That's why Jesus addresses these particular three practices in the Sermon on the Mount. These practices were central to the community that Jesus was preaching to. But I also want you to see here that these three practices are not just pillar practices in first century Judaism. Uh, These are practices that Jesus expects his own people to be devoted to. The church, we as Christians are to be devoted to these practices. Notice in verses 2, 5, and 16, Jesus doesn't say to his people, if you give, if you pray, if you fast. No, rather he says, when you give, when you pray, when you fast. And followers of Jesus are expected to give to the needy, to pray, and to fast. We're expected as followers of Jesus to be devoted to these very practices. And so he gives instructions for when we give. He says, verse 2, when you give to the needy. We're expected as followers of Jesus to give to the needy. I've heard Tim Keller several times uh, talk about how in in the Roman Empire, uh, Christians were were well known for their countercultural financial generosity. You know, the rest of the Greco-Roman world, people were promiscuous with their bodies, but stingy with their money. And Christians, on the other hand, were thought to be stingy with their bodies, but promiscuous with their money. They exuded generosity. They were well known for doing so. And honestly, I, I, I am really, I'm thankful that I get to belong to this particular community because this is a community wherein I've seen that same sort of countercultural generosity manifested, you know, because it comes from the same source, the Spirit of God. Uh, but in, in a culture wherein people are promiscuous with their bodies and stingy with their money, I've seen you, Veritas, time and time again, be very generous and promiscuous, as it were, with your money. Uh, Veritas, as your pastor, I've been surprised by your generosity time and time again, sometimes baffled by your generosity. Uh, As a church, you know, we've actually never been in danger of, of failing to meet our budget, but we've actually, year after year, been in a surplus, and within our church's budget, we have devoted to, uh, we are devoted to giving generously to those in need in our church with our emergency assistance fund. We're devoted to giving to local missions and global missions and organizations in which our people are directly involved with. And, and your financial generosity ensures that our church can collectively, as a people, be generous towards such things. And furthermore, there are also times wherein our, in our church wherein a need will come up and the IRS may not legally allow us to, to relieve 
um, suffering in, in that particular instance, may not be able to give funds to relieve such needs. And what we've seen time and time again, we've seen this multiple times throughout the last few years, we've seen time and time again that you as a people exude generosity even above what you give to the church regularly. Let me tell you, this is an evidence of God's grace within the lives of the people of Veritas. This is an evidence of God's grace. It's a powerful piece of evidence that God is supernaturally at work within you. And so my exhortation based on this particular piece of the passage here to you as the family of God is, is not to start being generous, but as the Apostle Paul tells the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 4.10, he says, do this more and more. In other words, he, he says, keep up the good work and seek to grow in this gift of generosity that you have wrought from the Spirit of God within you. When you give to the needy, when you give to the needy, we are expected to give to the needy. Next prayer, again, Jesus doesn't say, and if you pray. He doesn't say, if you pray. He says, and when you pray. And now, again, we're, we're going to dig into the prayer portion of this passage the next three Sundays uh, so I won't go too far into this now, but as Christians, we are, we are expected to pray. We are expected to pray. In first century Judaism, prayer was central to their daily schedule. They didn't just do early morning uh, quiet time prayer or devotion or whatever you call it. Uh, they had a prayer scheduled for the morning when they woke up, and then they had a midday prayer scheduled And then they had evening prayers scheduled before bed. And this was a part of their daily schedule. And they would pray three times a day, every single day. And no matter where they were, what they were doing, if one of these scheduled times of prayer came up, they would drop whatever it is that they were doing, and they would take time to pray. And then many of the early Christians actually adopted this practice as well. I remember reading a short book on prayer by Tertullian, uh, some time ago. He's a second century uh, African church father, and he instructed people to pray three times a day, once in the morning, once in the afternoon, and once in the evening. This was not uncommon. This was typically practiced amongst Christians for the first several centuries of the church because Jesus calls us to be a people devoted to prayer. So let me encourage you, if you are someone who struggles with keeping up the practice of prayer in your life, like those early Christians, set aside certain times for prayer every single day and be disciplined in your pursuit of a life of prayer. It doesn't have to be three times a day, although that might be helpful, but there needs to be a time set aside every single day on your calendar scheduled for prayer every day. D.A. Carson, he once spoke to this, this in startling, convicting terms. Listen to what he said. He once wrote that people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, and obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. In other words, please don't think that you will slowly in your life drift into a life of prayer on accident 
Prayer takes intention. Prayer takes discipline. Prayer takes grace-driven effort. Be resolved to pray. Jesus expects you to pray. And last, Jesus addresses the practice of fasting. Again, he doesn't say, if you fast. He says, and when you fast. Now, if you didn't feel bad at the prayer part, this will be sure to do it. It's about to get really quiet in here. To, to say that the practice of fasting is rare in most Protestant Western churches is, I mean, that's, like, that's generous, um, unfortunately. Uh, the reason is probably partly because prayer is either so rarely practiced except in lackadaisical fashion or because there's a, a sort of unfortunate ignorance as to what fasting is. So fasting and prayer, they're inextricably connected. Fasting is restraining or abstaining from food or drink for a certain period of time so that you can devote yourself to a special season of prayer. I'll say that again. Fasting is restraining or abstaining from food or drink for a certain period of time so that you can devote yourself to a special season of prayer. Of course, you know, there are other times in Scripture wherein fasting is practiced. Fasting is sometimes practiced as an expression of grief or mourning. Uh, sometimes it's practiced kind of along the same lines as an expression of repentance. Uh, but most of the time, fasting is practiced in order to devote oneself to a special season of prayer as an appeal to God for a particular request. It's an expression of humility and an act of showing one's earnestness about a particular prayer request in effort to appeal to God to answer that particular request. In the Bible, sometimes fasts are personal and private. Sometimes they're corporate and communal. So some examples of uh, situations that might call for fasting, perhaps, you know, there's a loved one that you want to see come to know the Lord. And perhaps there's a, a certain spiritual, physical, financial, emotional struggle in your life that's troubling you. Perhaps you're considering a move in job or home want to seek the Lord's will on the matter. And perhaps a local church is considering sending a particular individual uh, to a certain place for missions. We've seen examples of this in, in the book of Acts. Perhaps a, a local church sees a need to devote ourselves to a season of prayer uh, for renewal and evangelism, and, and so they fast. Perhaps a local church is considering buying a piece of property or something along those lines. These are the sort of occasions where it would be appropriate to devote oneself to a special season of prayer and fasting. And these are occasions that every church and every individual will inevitably face. And in such, in such situations, fasting ought to be practiced if one is able Jesus expects us to fast as his people. It's not if you fast, it's when you fast. Now, those are the practices, but a problem arises whenever we seek to devote ourselves to practices of righteousness. There's a risk of hypocrisy that always lays hidden close by in wait, isn't there? And indeed, Jesus calls us to these practices. He calls us to these practices. He calls us to practices of righteousness. And furthermore, remember the Sermon on the Mount just several weeks ago? Jesus actually calls us to be a publicly righteous community. Now, Jesus calls the church the light of the world, 
And he says that as the light of the world, we ought not try to make ourselves invisible to the world. Rather, he says in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Yet with that call, because of the deceitfulness of our hearts, we face a temptation to practice righteousness because of the recognition and reputation that we receive from a human audience rather than for the sake of pleasing our heavenly audience. In other words, we face the temptation to practice righteousness, to serve ourselves rather than to serve the one true God. And that's the problem Jesus addresses here, which he calls hypocrisy, calls this hypocrisy. And he says in verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And he goes on to describe how many of the religious elite of Jesus' day did exactly this. He says in verse 2, he says, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Apparently some in Jesus' day are giving alms to those in need, but they weren't doing so out of a sincere desire to please God and help their neighbor, but rather to, to kind of toot their own horn, as it were to be seen as this uber-righteous person and to be praised as such by others. And then concerning prayer in verse 5, Jesus says along the same lines, he says, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues. Oh wait, no, wrong text, sorry. He says, when you pray, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, They've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Apparently, since there were these kind of fixed hours of prayer, many in Jesus' day would stop and pray wherever they were and whatever they were doing, and, 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 and some began to take up kind of praying loudly and demonstratively for others to see them and praise them as bastions of righteousness in the community. And likewise, in verse 16, Jesus goes on to say, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Apparently, the religious elite in Jesus' day, some of them, when they would fast, they would intentionally look kind of gloomy and downcast. And perhaps they would, they would make themselves kind of disheveled and unkempt. They wouldn't put the nice beard oil in their beard and comb it. And, but they did that in order that others would, would take notice of their fasting and kind of see them as this, this paradigm of virtue and righteousness. Giving themselves over to these practices of righteousness this is a necessary and good thing for the people of God to do. Yet they were doing so for the sake of being praised by a human audience, not to please and glorify their heavenly audience. And so Jesus addresses the motivation of the heart behind the practices of righteousness, not just the practices of righteousness themselves. And this is key, because at times people have made this passage primarily about the location of giving prayer and fasting. But the primary issue Jesus is addressing here is not the location of those practices, but the motivation of those practices. The location is addressed too, we'll get to that in just a moment, but it's not primary. You know, if you refuse to help someone who is in need simply because someone might see you do so, you've missed this passage. It's not primarily about the location. If you refuse to pray 
in a corporate prayer meeting or participate in a corporate fast because others will hear you pray or know that you're fasting. You've missed this passage. It's not primarily about location, but it's primarily about motivation. Jesus shows us that doing the right thing with the wrong motivation is antithetical to this call to whole person righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount. He, he calls this hypocrisy. That's the problem here, the problem of hypocrisy. Now, this word hypocrisy is an interesting one. The Greek uh, word translated as hypocrisy here is actually the very same word used to describe play actors, so in like Greek or Roman plays. Now, you know, in those days, when people were acting plays, they wore costumes and, and whatnot, much like today, but they wouldn't wear makeup, they would wear these masks. They would wear masks and they would act and pretend to be a completely different person on stage when they were acting in these plays. Well, Jesus says that someone who gives generously just to post about it on Facebook, when they pray at, at church or prayer meeting or, or a community group or, or, or so that others will think them spiritual, or when someone fasts and, and casually drops a a comment about their fasting and conversation with a friend. He's saying that when we do that, we're not actually righteous. We're playing a part. We're playing a role. We're pretending. We're performing. We're acting. Notice here that, that the kind of hypocrisy Jesus is addressing is not merely the kind of hypocrisy wherein someone says or does a certain thing in one setting and then says or does another thing in another setting. You know, like a politician gets up in one county, says, you know what's wrong with this country is labor unions. Goes on to the next county. You know what this country needs more of? Labor unions. Isn't that it? Or a pastor who gets up in the pulpit and preaches against adultery all the while while he's carrying an affair. That's a form of hypocrisy, and Jesus is addressing that here. But he's also addressing this this other form of hypocrisy here, Jesus is calling hypocrisy, is, is when someone externally looks righteous and good but lacks inner virtue. When they do the right things but with the wrong motives. Jesus says when we do that, we're not actually righteous, we're hypocrites. He says that when we do that, we're not actually virtuous, we're actors. You know, it would be a huge mistake to think of this as a first century Jewish problem, but not an us here and now problem. In fact, I would go as far to say that with the advent of this social media age, we probably make the Pharisees look like amateurs at this. Because look at it, like, what were they doing when they, when they gave themselves to these practices in order to be seen by others? They were seeking to construct a certain image, a certain persona that caused others to praise them and think well of them. And I think some of us, if, if we took a real inventory of our hearts and motives for participating in certain things in social media, we would likely see that our motivation on social media, the pictures we post on social media, saying the things we say on social media, posting the thing we post on social media, are driven by the same sort of motivation. Our, our struggle with this kind of acting, performance, hypocrisy might not manifest itself by our praying long, loud, and demonstrative prayers while walking through the grocery store because that wouldn't actually cause people to praise you. They would probably think you're weird. But it very well might manifest itself 
through a, a, a tweet in support of Me Too and a call out of powerful men harassing and abusing women while you're secretly nursing a pornography addiction. Perhaps it might manifest itself as a, a kind of perfectly staged picture on Instagram of your Bible and your coffee and your notebook in the morning. And you don't actually read your Bible. You're actually just checking to see how many likes you get continually. Perhaps it manifests itself through a, a, a posting of a photo, picture-perfect photo of your family on Instagram, all the while you're secretly nursing resentment for your family for making your life difficult. Or perhaps it consists of, of making sure all your Facebook friends know about your continual and sacrificial service at the nonprofit you volunteer with. Or, or, or man, those, those GoFundMe folks are, are genius in making sure that you can publicly post your name and how much you donated on a GoFundMe campaign. That's genius. We eat that stuff up. It's acting and performance and hypocrisy. It's not a first century Jewish leader problem. It's an us problem. We eat that stuff up, and social media has provided for us a powerful means through which we can appease and even enlarge this hypocrite within. Rather, it's I think we see, though, that this appeasing and enlarging of the hypocrite within through social media is, is actually not leading to happiness and human flourishing, is it? I think it's leading to the opposite. It's leading to our feeling fractured, our feeling stretched thin, our feeling shallow, our feeling anxious. There's this really interesting study that an MIT professor named Sherry Turkle uh, performed, and she observed this very thing when she conducted a study. She interviewed over 400-plus kids for her book, Alone Together. And in her book, she, she states that during her study, she found that the students interviewed were becoming increasingly externally manufactured rather than internally developed. She says that this, this comes from the fact that on Twitter or Facebook, you're, you're trying to express something real about who you are, but because you're also creating something for others' consumption, you find yourself imagining and playing to your audience more and more. So those moments in which you're supposed to be showing your true self become a performance. Your psychology becomes performance. Isn't that the exact problem of hypocrisy that Jesus is addressing here? He's addressing this problem of being externally manufactured rather than internally developed. He's addressing the problem of approaching righteousness as a performance, an act, rather than a sincere disposition of one's heart. And so to fight against this problem of hypocrisy in our lives, Jesus prescribes these particular practices. He prescribes secret generosity, secret prayer, secret fasting, secret practices of righteousness. Now remember, the primary emphasis here is not the location of these practices, but the motivation for these practices. But still, Jesus is, in a way, addressing the location of these practices. And here's why, I think. It's because if you and I continue to struggle with this problem of performance, acting, hypocrisy, which you likely will always on this side of glory, if you continue to struggle with this, 
These secret practices of righteousness are some of the important means through which God will work to put to death that hypocrite within. There's something about secret practices of righteousness. There's something about giving generously without anyone's knowing about it. There's something about getting up in the morning, daily secret prayer before anyone else is up, before anyone else can even see you, spending time with your Father. There's something about quietly fasting without anyone else's knowledge that confronts and dismantles this hypocrite within. It serves as a means of counterformation. In a world that is constantly calling us to hypocrisy, God uses these means to form in us a genuine and sincere whole person righteousness. If you find yourself struggling with hypocrisy of performance and acting, if you find yourself stretched thin, shallow, fractured because of it, giving yourself to these secret and quiet practices of righteousness are a divinely ordained means through which God will progressively work to set you free from your hypocrisy. And here's the promise. If you give yourself to secret generosity, secret prayer, secret fasting, secret righteousness without doing so in order to be seen and praised by anyone, there's still a reward for you. The reward is not being praised by others. It's a better reward. Indeed, there's a precious reward. It says, because your heavenly Father sees you and he promises to reward you for your righteousness. So look with me lastly at the promise. The promise. At this point, I would be remiss to not point out the fact that Jesus is continually here referring to God as our Father. Don't move on from that too quickly. Part of what you need to realize in order to rightly put hypocrisy to death in your life is to realize that God is not standing over you as a judge eagerly waiting to make you pay for your sins if you trust in Christ. Realize, Christian, that Jesus has taken your sins upon himself. He has paid the debt of death owed for your sins, and he has taken your sins to the grave so that they no longer condemn you, no longer define you, no longer need control you. You're no longer a slave to sin And guilt, the debt of sin you owed is paid and paid in full. So now God is not standing you over you as your judge, but as your father. He's not standing over you eagerly waiting to punish you for your sins. He is patiently working in you to set you free from the sin that so ensnares and enslaves and hurts and harms us. And so as I tell you this in this part, don't forget that. Don't forget that the one Jesus is talking about here is your father. And here's the next part. Your father, he sees you. He sees you in secret, Jesus says in verses 4, 6, and 18. And that doesn't just mean that he sees you when you're alone and when no one else sees you. It means that. But it means more than that. It means that he sees and knows your heart. He knows the inner workings of your heart. He knows the thoughts, intentions, and motivations of your heart. For Samuel 16, 7, the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on 
the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And here's why you can't forget that the one who sees your heart is your heavenly Father, because first of all, you need to remember that the one who sees your sin is the same one who loves you so much that he gave Christ so that you would be forgiven. You understand, you can't hide your sin from him, but you also mustn't feel like you need to. Your sin is great, but his grace is greater still. Your hypocrisy is dreadful. It's awful. But it's no match for the power of his mighty love. It cannot keep him away while he is resolved to draw near to you. The cross proves that to be true, and his gift to you of calling him father proves it to be true. So so don't seek to hide your sin and hypocrisy from him. You can't and you mustn't feel that you need to. He's your heavenly father who wants to patiently work within you to give you more and more freedom to be who who you were created and redeemed to be. You're safe with him. Your sin's not safe with him, but you're safe with him. Second, you you need to remember that it is your heavenly Father who sees your heart because Jesus says here that he is going to reward you for your righteousness. Let me tell you something that we in the Reformed tribe don't typically, typically talk about. When God sees the fruit of righteousness in the life of his people, it pleases him. Like when God... God, your Father, sees this whole per- the fruit of the Spirit, this whole person righteousness manifested in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's happy. When you strive to obey the teachings of Jesus, your Father is very pleased with you. And to be clear, your obedience to Jesus here, your manifesting whole person righteousness, is not why God accepts you as his child. It's not what causes God to be your heavenly father. That would never work. Rather, God's acceptance of you as his child is what causes you to seek and grow in whole person righteousness. The fact that you are God's child is what leads you to grow in and manifest God, your father-like character. You become a chip off the old block. You become a spitten image of your father in heaven. And when God sees that happen, it really does please him. You know, if if you're a parent, you instinctively know what I'm talking about here. Sometimes your children behave sinfully and wickedly, and sometimes they behave sweetly and obediently, and neither of those things affects their status with you as their parent. parent. They're still your child, whether they're behaving well or sinfully. But when they behave behave well, it really does please you. Doesn't it? When your child says something encouraging or sweet, unprompted, when they perform an act of kindness toward another child, when they share without being prompted to do so, it it really does please you, doesn't it? It makes you rejoice. It makes you rejoice. Well, well, we can say the same of you with your heavenly Father, Christian. Your righteousness doesn't 
make you his son or daughter. But since you are his son or daughter, when you practice true whole person righteousness before him, it pleases him. He is pleased with you. Because he's pleased with you, when you practice whole person righteousness, Jesus says your father in heaven will reward you. Now again, we Protestants, we can sometimes struggle Such language, language of reward. How does this square with our being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? How can our salvation be a gift while there's also a reward promised for whole person righteousness? That sounds like salvation by works. First, we need to recognize that where this righteousness we're called to, we need to recognize where this righteousness we're called to comes from. We've seen from the start of the Sermon on the Mount until now that righteousness, the righteousness we're called to, is actually something given to us through the one calling us to it here. Remember going all the way back to the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 6, Jesus said that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied now that he is here. We hunger and thirst for righteousness as in it's not something that we can provide for ourselves. And it must be given to us as a gift in the kingdom of God. The righteousness we're called to manifest in relation to the law of God, as we saw prescribed in Matthew 5, is something that Christ came to give us since he came to write God's law upon our hearts, Jeremiah 31, 31. And so it seems to me that the righteousness we're promised a reward for here is actually a righteousness that is given to us as a gift in the first place. So if God wants to give us a reward as a gift for the gift of righteousness that he gives us in the gospel, then that doesn't sound like salvation by works to me. It sounds like grace upon grace. He imparts righteousness to you through the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit. And then he says, oh, he just says, I... I just love you so much and it pleases me so much when you manifest such righteousness that I want to give you rewards. My friends, that is the kind of God that we serve and call Father. That is the God who sees and knows your heart. Don't you see? He is a much better audience than this world. He is a much better audience than other people, and the reward he offers is infinitely better. The world's praise and approval is fickle, and it's short-lived. It's here one day, it's gone the next. But your father's reward is imperishable, incorruptible, it's eternal. His reward is everlasting resurrection life. His reward is his eternal kingdom reigning with him in a new heaven and new earth. For all eternity, this is his promise to you. And this is what he wants to motivate you to seek whole person righteousness and to forsake hypocrisy, to forsake a mere externally manufactured righteousness. Look to him and to him alone as your audience and for your reward. Let's pray. Father, would you seal this word upon our hearts? Would you pierce our hearts, set us free from hypocrisy and cause us to pursue righteousness 
in order to please and glorify you and you alone. Would you help us to look to you for our reward? Pray that you, you would empower this and enable this with the power and presence of your spirit within us. In Jesus' name, amen.